We've had a, a good time setting our pillars these last five weeks. It's kind of the foundational things that capture what we're about here at City on a Hill. And last week we wrapped up with Uncommon Community. And so this week we are returning to our series in John that we started before Advent called Life in His Name. And if you remember to way, way, way back. I know you've slept a few times since then. That the series was based on this passage, John chapter 20, verse 31. It says this, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There's a couple of themes that run through that verse that run through the rest of the book of John, right? One is this idea of belief, in Jesus Christ. What does that mean? What does that entail? What is true belief? What, what other thoughts have people had about Jesus? That's what we're going to look at today is some, some beliefs about Jesus that don't quite equal saving faith. And what does that true saving faith look like? And second is that the gospel is this way to true life, to really thrive, to really be pleasing to God, to really experience this joy and peace that surpasses understanding. To have this new life, we must be given new life in him. So this morning we're picking up where we left off several months ago now in the beginning of John chapter 7. So if you'd like to turn there now in your copy of Scripture, uh, this message is entitled True Belief. Like I said before, John is providing for us several examples of people that are responding to Jesus and his teaching and his miracles in different ways, but none of them quite hit the mark, right? And there's something here for us that we can learn. Or in other words, by looking at some some disbelief or some beliefs that don't hit the mark or maybe our common struggles, we can learn more about the belief we ought to have and which belief we need to be uh, kind of on guard against. But before we do that, I wanted to look and maybe give a kind of a quick recap of what, where we've been, what we've talked about so far in the book of John. And I want to do that by looking at the signs that Jesus has done so far that are recorded in John for us, these sort of sign gifts. Um, they're going to be especially important uh, as we're looking at chapter 7, so I thought it would be a nice way to, to summarize. Uh, and so the first was when Jesus turned water into wine in John 2. Remember, his, Jesus and his disciples and uh, his family were all invited to a wedding where they tragically ran out of wine, and Jesus' mother asks him, hey, do something about it. And he, if you remember, takes those giant um, jars or, or um, pots full of water and turns those into good wine. The second was the healing of the nobleman's son in John chapter 4. Uh, a nobleman comes and, and meets Jesus, and instead of Jesus going to his son to heal him, he simply speaks it into existence, speaks healing uh, to him, and it, and it happens. And the nobleman responds in faith, takes him at his word, and leaves and returns to find it to be true. Third was the healing of the paralytic who had laid by the pool in John 5. Uh, they, if you recall, he had been laying on this mat for, for quite 
some time by this pool that was stirred up every morning. And the thought was, or the belief was, that if you were the first one to, to get into the pool as it was stirred up, that you would be healed. And, um, of course, was unsuccessful uh, in being first, being a paralytic. And so Jesus comes and asks him, do you want to be healed? And, of course, he's like, uh, yes, please. And Jesus does heal him and uh, kind of breaks Sabbath in the process of doing that. We're going to talk a little bit more about that one later. Uh, and immediately, uh, or in the next chapter in, in John 6, was the, the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus is teaching this huge crowd of, of people in the wilderness where they're, they're far enough away from you know, a town or a market that there was no conceivable way to get food for all these people. And so Jesus feeds them by multiplying the fish and the loaves. Immediately after this one, in the second half of John 6, uh, there's this miracle of walking on the water. The, the disciples are crossing the sea to Capernaum and Jesus walks over to their boat in the middle of the sea and, and gets in with them. Uh, but it, on the other side of the sea, when the, the crowds catch up with Jesus, remember they were looking for more signs and they were looking for more bread. And in, instead of that, they got this teaching that's often called the bread of life discourse, where Jesus essentially says, you have to eat of my flesh and drink my blood uh, to have this kind of uh, new life, the, the bread that uh, will never leave you hungry, which wasn't a very popular teaching. And a lot of the crowd and a lot of people that were following him and a lot of his disciples, uh, except for the 12, uh, stopped following him or left him at that time. So we won't see another sign uh, from Jesus until chapter 9, like you can see up there. But in the meantime, everyone, the crowds, the disciples, everyone is kind of taking what they've seen about Jesus so far, and they're trying to decide who is he and what ought we believe about him? How should we interact with him? That kind of leads us to our uh, big idea this morning. It's that everyone, even us, even believers, must root out disbelief to experience the fullness of new life in Christ. We have to be continually rooting out disbelief in our lives to experience that fullness of new life. I uh, appreciate how Charles Spurgeon explains this, so I'm, I'm just going to read a, a quote from him. This is from a sermon he delivered on January 14th, 1855, entitled, The Sin of Unbelief. In a saint... Unbelief is the root of other sins. When I am perfect in faith, I shall be perfect in everything else. I should always fulfill the precept or the command if I always believed the promise. But it is because my faith is weak that I sin. Put me in trouble, and if I can fold my arms and say, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide, you will not find me using wrong means to escape from it. But put me in temporal distress and difficulty. And if I distrust God, what then? Well, perhaps I shall steal or do a dishonest act to get out of the hands of my creditors. Or kept from such transgression, I may plunge into excess to drown my anxieties. Right? If, if unbelief is, is the root of so many of our, our sins or so many of our suffering, then it's of the utmost importance this morning and in, in general in our lives and our Christian lives and our walk with Christ 
to root out disbelief and to put on trust and truth into who God is and the truth of his words. And as we kind of dive in this morning, let's ask for his help to do that this morning. Father, thank you for your word to us. We're thankful to return to the book of John and and to continue in our study of it and in the gospels. And I'm just so thankful for the depth of your word that we can read it over and over and study it over and over and still mine more truth from it. And there's still more that we can apply to our lives. And we're still able to grow in our love for you and our trust in you and understanding of you. Father, help um, us this morning discern between true faith and true belief in you and the uh, maybe popular opinions of those around us or, or unbelief that we might be tempted to believe. Show us uh, through your word, your truth. Thank you for another morning to study your word together. May you be glorified in it. Amen. With that in mind, let's uh, look to John chapter 7. Hopefully you've found your way there. I'm going to start in verse 1. I'll read the passage and then we can uh, look at the points. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booze was at hand, and so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. And if you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. But Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he is a good man, Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. Verse 1 opens immediately with, uh, after this, which kind of signifies to us that it's connected in some way uh, to what came before. And like we just summarized at the beginning, chapter 6 was the feeding of the 5,000 and um, the kind of bread of life discourse. And I think the connection simply is that this took place after those things happened. So this is uh, kind of based on the calendar and when the, this festival was, probably six months after the events of uh, chapter 6, as best we can tell. And we're told in verse 2 that he was avoiding Judea because uh, the threats on his life. And yet, to attend the feast in Jerusalem... Right, which is kind of the heart of Judea, the heart of the Jewish authorities' kind of power and influence, he would uh, have to kind of put himself into the lion's den, so to speak. Right? It's kind of the far side of Judea from where he was in Galilee. And it's kind of in this setting that I want to turn our attention to our first point, is Jesus' brother's disbelief. Jesus' brother's disbelief. 
as a miracle worker. Both their disbelief that he could work miracles and their disbelief to see the bigger picture. His brothers make a suggestion. Now, these brothers aren't brothers like, I'm your brothers in Christ. These are actually Jesus' brothers, the children that Mary and Joseph went on to have after Mary had Jesus. Coming off of this talk of the bread of life and and eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and no, I'm not going to make more food for you. Like we said before, Jesus wasn't a very popular guy right at this moment, right? A lot of his followers had abandoned him. It seems like a reasonable PR move to say, you know, Jesus, why don't you go to Jerusalem? There's going to be so, so many people there from all over. They'd be super interested to see your signs. Why don't you do a few miracles and you'll, right, you'll be right back in this thing, right? You'll have, you'll have plenty of followers in no time. And yet in verse 5, John makes sure to qualify their advice with, lest we be confused, that even Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him, right? They believe lots of things about him, but they lack the whole picture. And their attitude seemed to be based on verse 4, you do signs, prove it, right? You do signs and miracles, prove it. And not just prove it, but prove it on the big stage, right? Like Jerusalem, kind of the center of Jewish life, prove it and do those signs in Jerusalem, and then maybe we'll believe you. They see Jesus like the crowds as a miracle worker, but not Savior of the world, and maybe even skeptically as a miracle worker. They're they're stuck in this sort of worldly thinking. Jesus goes on to say just uh, about as much in verses 6 through 7, right? Their time is always here. Why is their time always here? Because they are of the world. Why can't the world hate them? Because they belong to it and the world loves their own, right? This worldly thinking. Jesus says something similar to the disciples in John chapter 15, verse 19. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you, right? There's this juxtaposition in scripture between this kind of worldly thinking and belonging to the world and where Jesus is at, his godly thinking, godly priorities. And the world hates Jesus because he is not of the world. And like it says in this passage, because he calls out their evil deeds. But it cannot hate his brothers because they're of the world. And so for us, the natural question is kind of where are we aligned with with Jesus in this heavenly focused thinking? And where is our thinking more aligned with worldly thinking, right? Does your belief in God's instructions for your life or, or in who God is depend on seeing Jesus as the miracle worker, right? And that sort of worldly thinking. Is it go back to Jesus? I don't just trust your word. I need you to prove it. I need you to prove it? Or does it hinge on the circumstances in your life? Does the belief or following God's instructions or who God is hinge on the circumstances in your life, right? How would this look, right? If, if God were really loving, he would not let me suffer in this way. He would heal me. If God wanted me to work hard at my job and do my work as unto him, he would have given me a higher paying job. He would give me a better job, If God really cared, I would have found a spouse by now. I would be married. I would have kids. So many of my prayers aren't answered or answered with a no. 
God must not be there or he's not listening. This is the sort of, or the first sort of belief we need to guard against, the prove it sort of belief, right? I will only believe it, I will only trust in it if you prove it, Jesus. But who ultimately gets to decide when he's proven it, right? Who gets to decide when he's given enough signs or enough miracles, right? If Jesus is the miracle worker and that's all he is, when has he provided enough proof? And ultimately, it's a fancy way of saying, I get to decide, right? I'm putting myself on the throne. It's like, when Jesus, I'll let you know when you've proven it to me, when you've done enough for me to believe in you. And that's the sort of foundation that doesn't produce true belief, right? It didn't in the 5,000 and the crowds that followed him, right? What did they want when they found him again? Were they excited to be reunited with Jesus, Savior of the world, for more of his teaching, right? No, what did they want? They wanted more bread. They wanted more signs. They wanted more stuff, not more Jesus. But the main reason he didn't go up or didn't go to Jerusalem initially is the reason he gives in verse 8 is simply, my time has not yet come. And that phrase should kind of set off an alarm in your head or or ring a bell. It should be familiar in our study of of John. At the wedding, uh, that first sign we talked about in in the introduction, when Jesus turned water into wine in John 2, right, something very, very similar was said. Um, Listen to this exchange between Jesus and his mother in chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Right? So there's a couple parallels here between these two stories. One, of course, is that, that kind of phrasing, right? It's my hour has not yet come or my time has not yet come. And there's this, uh, in contrast to his, his brothers or his family's worldly priorities, Jesus' priorities must be dictated by his obedience to God. Not even his closest earthly relatives, right, his mother, his, his brothers, could sway him from that path of obedience to God. And similarly, we must stand strong in our belief, not just family, but regardless of Influence and temptation, we stand strong and we, we know to be true from the word of God and what we know to be true about God and about Christ. Second, Jesus, in both, both times, goes on to do pretty much exactly what his relatives suggested, right? He does, in fact, eventually go up to Jerusalem to the festival. He does, in fact, make wine for the wedding. And all these things kind of thematically link the, the book of John to say this, that Jesus is revealing himself and intentionally not revealing himself so that he might reveal himself at the perfect time in God's timing. And now a question I had while I was reading this was, does Jesus lie? Like, does Jesus lie when he's like, hey, I'm not going up? And then a few verses later we read, and then Jesus goes up. Does Jesus lie? Is it like, maybe some of you can relate, 
Maybe I'm, I'm just crazy. If you're a little more introverted or you're just tired, right? Your friend asks you, hey, do you want to go out tonight? And you're like, uh, no, I got plans. But plans are like sitting at home watching Netflix, right? Maybe it's just me. Maybe none of you guys do that. Um, and then later you get hungry and you, you go get dinner and you see your friend there. And they're like, oh, I thought you were, I thought you were busy, right? Is that what Jesus was like? He's like, oh, I'm not going up to the, to the festival. And then he does later. I would say uh, not quite, right? It's not quite the same. Jesus' response to his brothers is not a promise, like I'm never going to leave Galilee ever again, but that because his life is regulated by these, these heavenly priorities, his heavenly father's guidance and appointments, he is not going to, fe- to the feast when his brothers say he should, but when his father says he should. So his, his not in this case is turning down his brother's request. It does not promise that he will not go up to the feast or change his mind when his father sanctions the trip, right? So there's a little change in circumstances there. So kind of the assumption in verse 10 then is the father has made his will known to Jesus in some way. And so Jesus goes up to Jerusalem then, leaving Galilee, uh, what would be the last time before uh, the cross, right? And then one day Jesus will make his big reveal. But it won't be with miracles that his brother or the crowds are hoping for. And it would be in Jerusalem, but it would be on the cross, right? It's the cross where Jesus draws all people to himself and, and by which he becomes the savior of the world. And that's who he is. And that's where he wants the, the big reveal to be, the emphasis to be as Jesus as savior of the world, not as Jesus' miracle worker. And our belief can't be rooted in miracles or, or Jesus arranging our lives, the lives of our loved ones in such a way that we like or enjoy, right? That's belief primarily in Jesus the miracle worker, not savior of the world. And so I think for us this morning, uh, we should be thinking about or we're kind of contemplating, okay, how is my picture of Jesus or my trust in his words influenced by my desire for him to work in certain ways? And especially in ways that he's chosen not to work, right? Those prayers that have gone unanswered or have been no's, how do those influence me or my thinking or my trust. That's the first kind of example of disbelief to avoid. Jesus primarily as miracle worker. The second is the, the Jews' disbelief. The Jews' disbelief as Jesus is a sort of antagonist, right? The Jews, the Jews were at the, looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? Where is he? At first, it doesn't look like we have a lot to go off of what what they believe, other than uh, they're looking for Jesus, and so he must be somewhat important to them, uh, and that's about it. But I think uh, looking at a couple different places, we can get a good sense of it. In fact, I would say John has kind of already told us what the Jews think about Jesus by this point in the book, right? So one helpful observation would be uh, the Jews, this kind of group of people in verse 11, is being contrasted with the crowds in verse 12, which is kind of funny because 
right? This is a Jewish festival. Like the crowd is Jews from all over the place. So who are the Jews, this other group in verse 11? Well, it's the, the Jewish authorities, the Jewish leadership that is kind of focused, concentrated there in Jerusalem. Uh, John specifically in the book of John often refers to them this way simply as the Jews, even though it certainly doesn't represent all of the Jews at that time. And knowing that, and knowing kind of what we know from verse one, right? The Jews were seeking to kill him. And verse 13, that people wouldn't speak openly about Jesus. In other words, the Jews were so, so considered Jesus their enemy that even people talking about him would kind of invoke their, their wrath. To them, he wasn't the savior of the world. He was hostile. He was the enemy. He was an antagonist, the competition. They, uh, John has already told us as much in chapter 5, verse 18, right? After Jesus heals the paralytic, it says this, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal with God, right? So even, even from chapter 5, the Jewish authorities were trying to kill Jesus. And as a, a believer, of course, well, I would never say, oh, I want, you know, I want Jesus to die. I'm not, I'm not thankful that he had to die on the cross for my sins. And yet, the idea that Jesus could even kind of compete with my priorities, or that Jesus could be an obstacle, or I could view Jesus as an obstacle to some things I want, is uh, maybe a little disturbing, but I, I think if we all took a hard look at ourselves, you could kind of see or kind of relate to that idea, right? There, there are things in our lives, our, our health, our jobs, our family, our, our loved ones that we hold tight to, and, and we ought to, and we ought to care for those things. And if those things were ever taken away from us, of course we would be sad and we would, we would grieve and all of that. But sometimes we hold so tight that even if, even if God just modifies those things slightly or in, or in a way that we don't like, Jesus can feel like our enemy or like an obstacle to us, to this thing that we really need or this thing that we really want, right? He's getting in the way of that. Now, some of us might be here, might be in that place, that headspace this morning. Maybe you've, circumstantially, your life has been hard for a long time. Maybe there's hopes and dreams that never came to pass and maybe can't at this point. Maybe there's things you've been struggling with for so long that it just feels like forever or feels like God is not really working or on your side. And can we be honest and say, even as believers, sometimes we can feel this way. And can we also be honest and say, sometimes an aspect of this or, or part of this is us entering into disbelief, right? And we don't believe God is acting for our good or for our sanctification or for his glory or that he would know better or that his sovereign plan might compete with some of our priorities, our, our plan. And I think the question for us this morning is, of course, where, where is that happening? And then also, how do we move to trust, right? When we see these things, when we see our priorities competing, how do we new, move to a place of agreeing with God and trusting in him, right? 
That's the, the Jews' kind of disbelief that we need to be on guard against. Third is the crowd's disbelief. And there's kind of two flavors of it, right? Jesus is a, a good man or he is a fraud. John, John gives us that kind of window into their thinking in verse 12. And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. In contrast to uh, the Jews, the crowds seem kind of genuinely curious, right? They're made up of Jews from kind of all over, uh, and they, they land in basically those two camps. And I want to talk about each of them uh, in turn. So we'll start with Jesus as a, a good man. And are they wrong to say Jesus was a good man? Not really, right? Like he was fully God and fully man, and he wasn't just good, he was perfect. He was perfectly good. So it's not so much that that is a problem, it's that that's where it stops, right? If, if all Jesus is is an especially good person, he was a good person, he had some good teaching, we sort of lump him and they sort of lump him into a category that prevents them from realizing anything more profound about him, namely that he is God and that he is savior of the world, right? And I think we see that in our culture too. Jesus himself, like the person of Jesus, and some aspects of him are popular, right? Like the golden rule, even if you've never stepped forth in a church, if you lived in America, you've probably heard it, and you're probably like, yeah, that makes sense. Everyone loves uh, the golden rule. Everyone loves Jesus as the one who, you know, reached to the, to the, the underprivileged, the poor, and the outcast. Everyone loves the equality that Jesus preached regardless of kind of your social standing or your wealth or your age or your race, right? Any of those kind of shallow, mundane things that tend to divide us, right? Everyone loves these things. And yet, when we stop there, Jesus becomes kind of like Gandhi to us, right? Like, he's just a good teacher, we like some of his principles. And that can't be it for us, right? Jesus and who Jesus is and what he came to do is so much more complex than that and so much more powerful. If the main reason he came was to teach, then why would you die on the cross, right? Why wouldn't you live a long life and, and teach for 40, 50 more years? If the, the main reason you came was to live a good life and to uh, preach Good words. Why did he die on the cross? So even for, for us as believers who know him as Lord and Savior, do we operate like in our day-to-day? -day, he is the one giving us new life. He is the one enabling us in, to obey these commands. He's helping us to grow. He's changing our heart. See, sometimes it feels like we need Jesus to, to, to start the journey, right? To, we put our faith and trust in him and then we're saved. And then it's kind of like, okay, the rest of the, the time I am kind of like, I'm doing it, right? I'm, I'm trying to obey and obey his commands. And while we do try to obey his principles and obedience, we ought to obey that obedience flows out of the gospel. It flows out of what Jesus has done for us and it flows out of what he is still doing for us and still working in our lives and still changing in growing us. It flows out of Jesus, not as primarily as good teacher, a good man, even though he is. It flows out of Jesus as Savior, right? Jesus as Savior. So that's one camp in the crowd. He's a good man. And the second is he's a fraud, right? He's, he's leading the people astray from true faith. 
And I can sympathize with this a little bit uh, because it's one of the only reasonable reactions you can have to Jesus, right? If, if someone is, is here and he's claiming to do miracles and there's all these witnesses and he's saying, hey, I am God came in human form, uh, you can either say and agree with him and say, yep, you, he really is God. You can either say he is a deceiver, a fraud, a charlatan. He's tricking people into thinking he's God or he's crazy, right? Because no, no good person claims they're God when they're actually not, right? That's it's sort of like a, hey, I'm God, worship me sort of selfishness, right? So it's, it's one of these reasonable reactions. But for us here that are already believers, we wouldn't say Jesus is a charlatan, right? We believe him. He's our Lord and Savior. And yet, I think disbelief in this area for us comes as a sort of skepticism, right? Is Jesus really working in my life? Could, could Jesus heal someone today kind of miraculously? Is he, is he really using even this, you know, this suffering in my life? Is he really even using this for my good? And when we, we don't take Jesus at his, at his words, we're kind of adding our own, our own judgments or, or kind of own reasoning or, or kind of limited knowledge and we kind of question it. So is there somewhere in your life where you're not taking Jesus, not taking God at his word, where your own sort of perspective or judgments have gotten in the way of that obedience or trust? Because we have to kind of be careful. We have to qualify this, right? God gave us reasoning and he gave us discernment and all of these other things to think carefully about certain things and a certain amount of skepticism is good, right? But uh, for us, right, we ought to be comparing the truth of things against God's word, not comparing God's word against uh, other of our own kind of personal thoughts. But I think the biggest uh, danger for us is to qualify them or kind of limit or distrust them because of our own desires, Right, just ultimately because of our own sinful desires and less about any sort of like uh, uh, philosophical or reasonable kind of argument or objection, right? I think this is a, a trap that uh, people who haven't accepted Jesus yet, this is one of the pitfalls that prevent them from getting there. But we ourselves also fall into to varying degrees, right? Like, I want what I want. Like, I want to I wanna smoke this, I want to do this, I want to watch this, I want to ignore this person, right? These things, our desires fuel our skepticism, right? It's just enough to say, did God really say this? Or did God really mean, when he said that, did he really mean this? Or was this really included? There's a, a well-known uh, philosopher, he's atheist. He's my favorite atheist philosopher, Probably most of you don't have a favorite atheist philosopher, but that's the sort of thing I've, I've been into since I was an undergraduate. His name's Thomas Nagel. Um, I like him because he's very honest. Um, and uh, he, I think he articulated this idea we're talking about very well in his book, uh, The Last Word, um, which is one of, one of his older works, but uh, I've enjoyed several of his. Um, he says this, I want atheism to be true, and I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief, right? So it isn't just, I, I believe this and I want to be right, because who doesn't want to be right? But it's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe, right, reality to be like that. 
And my guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition and that it is responsible for much of the scientism and reductionism of our time. Lots of big words at the end there, but in normal people language, what he's saying, right, is, is if God existed, and he is who he says he is in the Bible, then he would and would deserve to be the ruler of our lives. We would be obligated to follow his commands. And what he's saying is, I don't want that to be true. I don't want that to be the case because I want to do what I want to do. I don't want there to be someone out there who has the right to tell and kind of dictate for me right from wrong. And he ends with kind of his estimation that this isn't a rare condition or a rare belief that probably a lot of people in our day and age think this way or that this is one of the big hurdles for people. And I think it can seep into us too, right? There's things we hold on to tightly or that we desire that we kind of make excuse for God's word and say, did he really say or kind of qualify it so that we can try to have both, right? We can, we can in our minds, obey God and kind of keep this thing that we also really like doing or having. That's the uh, kind of second half of the, the, the third point. And finally, we get to the kind of turn here. So we've looked at a bunch of ways of, of here's what we ought not to do, here's what we ought not to believe, or here's where their picture's incomplete. But what's the right way to think about Jesus? And that's our, our fourth point, is that Jesus, the true belief is, is Jesus as Savior of the world. We've talked about it, kind of hinted at it throughout our time this morning. Yes, Jesus is a miracle worker. Yes, he rebuked the Pharisees and made some enemies. Yes, he was a good teacher and had good teaching and was a good man. And he wasn't a fraud, but he didn't come primarily for any of those reasons, right? None of those things explain why he died on the cross. And after dying on the cross was such a big turning point for his followers, right? After the cross is when his disciples became bold in their faith and in sharing and in teaching others about him. And it's because his main purpose in John's word, we started with it, that so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name, right? So what do we do when we encounter this kind of disbelief in our life, when we encounter these areas where we either don't believe it or our actions don't line up with what we say we believe? We counteract disbelief by reaffirming the corresponding truth from God's word, right? We, we, we put off, then we identify and kind of put off those things where you're saying, I'm not either living this way or not believing God at taking him at his word. And we put on, we reaffirm the true belief from God's word. He's using even this thing that seems really hard in my own estimation is not good and I don't see it. His word says, this is for my good. When I feel unloved and I feel like there is so much injustice, I look to his word and know that he is loving and he loves me and he is kind and he is just. And when he feels more like an obstacle or an enemy than my savior, I'm reminded that he demonstrated on the cross and died for me selfishness, not when I was his friend or his follower, but when I was his enemy. 
he did that for me. See, he came to solve a problem that we couldn't solve on our own. We were enemies of God. We were sinners. We had no hope of saving ourselves. Jesus came to die on the cross to pay the price that we couldn't by sacrificing his own life so that, right, John 3.16, the passage we already had, believing in him, trusting in that sacrifice, believing he is God and Lord, that we might be reconciled to him and be saved. True belief in Jesus is belief in Jesus as the Lamb of God, the Lamb that came and died on our behalf that we might live. And so if you, that isn't you yet, or you're not quite there yet, and, and don't quite believe those things yet, um, I just invite you this morning to kind of consider these sort of ways of disbelief that we've talked about this morning, and to consider the true Jesus that we uh, worship, that we've gathered here to worship this morning, is the one who came and lived and died for us, that we might have life in his name. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for sending your son to die in our place. Thank you for the instruction, for the good example, the good teaching, for the miracles, the healing. But most of all, we're thankful for his sacrifice. And through that sacrifice on the cross that we can be reconciled to you and that we can be called your sons and daughters, and that we can know that we know that we know that when we die and that this life ends, that we will enter into a new life, an eternal life with you. We confess so often we don't believe or take you at your word, or we don't act on your words that we know to be true, Father, and just pray that you'd help us to eliminate that inconsistency in our lives. Would you... Make us more like Jesus. Make us more trusting and perfectly trusting in, in you and, and that our belief in you as Savior would trump you as the miracle worker. Now, we wouldn't need more proof or wouldn't need to qualify what you say to get what we want, but that you would help us to root out disbelief in our heart. Help us to see it. Help us to put it off and put on the truth from your word. Father, thank you, Jesus, again for this this time. And we ask all these things in the name of your precious Son. Amen.